Hello, and welcome to another episode of Cracking Addiction with Philippe and Naren and Fergal Armstrong. In the episode of Cracking Addiction today, we're going to be talking about gabapentinoids, what they are and how they work. So, Fergal, if I could ask you, what are gabapentinoids and how do they work within the body? So, I suppose the term gabapentinoid was termed to reflect the name of the first drug in the group, which was gabapentin. Now, I'm presuming that gabapentin was called gabapentin because it looks like GABA and has got a structure containing five things in it. I'm not entirely sure. Maybe you know. Maybe one of the viewers know. I I don't know. So the question is, why is gabapentin called gabapentin? Nonetheless, gabapentin has given us the term the gabapentinoids, and the second member of this group is pregabalin. Now, again, I don't know why pregabalin was called pregabalin, something to do with previous molecule, or who knows. Anyway, I think the the key thing that uh, characterizes the gabapentinoids is the fact that they act on the um, voltage-gated calcium channel in in the presynaptic neuron. And this has the effect of inhibiting the voltage-gated calcium channel, which therefore then inhibits the ingress of calcium into the presynaptic neuron, which therefore then inhibits the process of exocytosis of synaptic vesicles, which therefore inhibits the process of synaptic neurotransmission. So that's how they work. Now, uh, Philippe, would you care to discuss, uh, you know, how they, you know, which parts of the brain they affect and how and their therapeutic uses? Sure. So, basically, as we've just um, explained, these are GABA analogs. So they essentially increase the amount of GABA that's in in the in the presynaptic space, basically, and they act or the clinical indications for uh, gabapentinoids are. Well, they're quite broad. They were initially marketed as anti-epileptic medications. They have indications for neuropathic pain. Um, and those were the main indications uh, for them. Sometimes they have been used for other indications as well, such as treatment of um, withdrawal symptoms in, in alcohol and, and as an adjunct to, to use in alcohol use disorder. But that certainly hasn't taken off in, in a broader sense. But... Essentially, the, the largest indication for gabapentinoid medications are as anti-epileptic medications and as analgesic um, medications. Is that your understanding as well, Fergal? Yeah, so yeah, epilepsy and neuropathic pain. Um, and in the UK, I think that also has a license for generalized anxiety disorder. But certainly in Australia, there's only two license indications, epilepsy and uh, neuropathic pain. Now, you know, I think a lot of GPs will initiate the gabapentinoids for pain, but it's not necessarily neuropathic pain. So, for instance, there's a lot of pregabalin and gabapentin that's used for back pain. Now, if I could discuss pain a little bit, I mean, you know, we, we understand that nociceptive pain is associated with tissue injury. So you bang a hammer on your, on your finger when you're hammering a nail in, you get trauma and that hurts. That's nociceptive pain. Neuropathic pain is defined as pain due to a lesion, a demonstrable lesion in the somatosensory system. 
And that the somatosensory system starts at the fingers and goes all the way up into the brain, right? So anywhere along that pathway, or the fingers or the toes up to the brain. There is, however, a third diagnosis of pain called a nociplastic pain, where you've got chronic pain, like chronic low back pain, but there isn't any more, uh, there's no more tissue injury. You know, the, the back is healed, but you've got chronic back pain. And so that's now termed nociplastic pain, because it's not actually due to a lesion in the somatosensory system. Uh, and, and, and other examples of nociplastic pain would include, you know, irritable bowel syndrome, visceral hyperalgesia, complex regional pain syndrome, um, and fibromyalgia. So I suppose they're all characterized by some form of sensitization. So moving away from the nociplastic pain and moving away from the nociceptive pain, we have this very specific diagnosis of neuropathic pain. And really, to make a diagnosis of neuropathic pain, you, there, there are, there's a hierarchy of diagnoses. So there's possible, probable, uh, definite. P possible neuropathic pain can be diagnosed on history alone. So, you know, I've got diabetes and I've got numb fingers. Uh, probable neuropathic pain uh, needs to be diagnosed really on examination findings. And so really what we're looking for is objective ex evidence of, um, you know, a neuros neurosensory deficit, uh, you know, in the, in, in the affected part of the body. And then definite would be evidence of lesions on imaging. So really, you shouldn't really start gabapentinoids until you've got at least probable neuropathic pain. So really, you should be examining your patients for a, a, a neuro, neurological deficit, a sensory deficit. Now, I'm pretty sure that not every patient who started on a gabapentinoid for back pain has got a an, an, an examination evidence or uh, of a neurological sensory deficit. What, what's your view on that? I would agree with you, Fergal. It does seem that the amount of pregabalin has certainly increased in terms of uh, being prescribed, and the indication is not always um, as per the PBS guidelines here in Australia, or the yeah. fact that it is definite proven neuropathic pain. A lot of the time it seems like it's used for that chronic uh, nociceptive or nociplastic pain that you mentioned earlier. And again, that yeah. is prescribed outside of the guidelines that, that are recommended yeah. for it. Yeah. And thus it's likely of limited benefit and the harms um, are present. So basically the, the, the harms outweigh the benefits when it's uh, prescribed in, in a manner that's not indicated. And I guess, Segwaying a tiny bit to to the harms with pregabalin, uh, Fergal, we know that uh, the number of deaths associated with pregabalin have risen. And I think in 2013, mm. there were only about 16 deaths associated with pregabalin. And then mm. in 2016, that rose dramatically to a, about 121. And we know that there was an article, I think, in the uh, Medical Journal of Australia in, in 2018 from ambulance data that found a tenfold increase in the rate of pregabalin-related ambulance attendances since 2012. And yeah. a lot of these are unintentional overdoses of pregabalin or interactions that pregabalin has with, with other medications. So it's, yeah. it's quite shocking, isn't it, that this, this medication has caused such significant harm and morbidity? Yeah, it, it's... In keeping with the opioid epidemic, I think we now have a, a pre-gabalin epidemic. And, you know, it's the coroner's data in Victoria and also the, um, the evidence of overdose data or, or accidental death data from the Pennington Institute. 
They both identify polysubstance use as a, as a significant cause of overdose and death, and they both identify pregabalin uh, in, in that mixture. And so we're, we're now beginning to see uh, legislative changes to try and incorporate uh, pregabalin in various Australian um, real-time prescription monitoring systems. Uh, the first one was, was DORA in Tasmania. The second one was SafeScript in Victoria. And I don't think they actually included pregabalin in their monitoring, but uh, the, the one in, uh, in New South Wales and Queensland, Queensland, they now include pregabalin, I think, in their monitoring. Indeed. I guess yeah. the, the question that arises with this is this is a prescription medication and the harms are increasing and we may not have seen the crest of it given how widely pregabalin is, is being prescribed. Are there yeah. any combinations of medications that you would be uh, treading carefully, carefully with or you would uh, caution our listeners and viewers not to mix pregabalin with in particular? So I think that there's a number of myths, first of all. Uh, so the first of all, I'd like to dispel the myths. It shouldn't be used for chronic low back pain. Right? It shouldn't really be used unless you've examined someone for neuropathic pain. But yeah, chronic low back pain, don't use it. Um, it is a sedative drug. So therefore, it has the potential to interact with any other sedative. So if we go through the entire range of sedative drugs in, the, in our Australian pharmacopoeia, we've got you know, all the opioids, all the benzodiazepines, all the sedative antipsychotics, all the sedative antidepressants, all the sedative antihistamines, and then we've got alcohol. You know? I mean, that, that as a basic list, that, that's a pretty good starter for 10, I'd say. You know, don't use pregabalin with these other sedating medications unless you have done an adequate risk assessment and unless you are aware of the risks. There has to be a damn good reason to contribute to someone's hypnosedative load. Now, the other point to make, it's not just about the interaction between pregabalin and all the other sedative medication. It's also about assessing the clinical risks or rather the clinical vulnerability to overdose that the patient has. So for instance, a young fit athlete with no cardiorespiratory or hepatorenal disease is going to be, is going to tolerate an increased sedative load compared to a decrepit 60 year old who's smoked all his life, got COPD, heart failure, liver impairment from chronic alcohol use disorder, and renal impairment from, you know, untreated hypertension, you know. So that patient is going to be more vulnerable to the potential effects of an increased hypnosedative load when we compare that to a young fit athlete, for instance. So it's about un understanding what pregabalin is or what gabapentin is, what's the potential hypnosedative load implications, and also what's the patient vulnerability. And unless you do all of those three things, you're really missing the boat in terms of, in terms of risk management. Absolutely. And I think just to, to highlight one of the things that you mentioned, um, a lot of the gabapentinoids are essentially uh, renally excreted and they undergo very minimal metabolism. So if yeah. anyone has even some minor renal impairment or worsening yeah. renal impairment, you really yeah. need to review the dose of these gabapentinoids yeah. because they're not getting cleared, they can accumulate and they can cause sedation. Yeah. And I've certainly seen quite a few patients who over time as we age, our renal function gets worse and you just see these patients getting progressively more and more sedated and the combination is just disastrous. So you do really need to be aware of of the dangers with these medications. Which yeah. also, I guess, brings me to, the, to a second point. What's your approach to weaning 
the gabapentinoids or, or how, <laughs> how do you wean the, the gabapentinoids? Because it is a controversial issue and it is a vexed yeah. issue. Yeah. Can I just go back to the first, the point that you made about the renal function before I go on to this with, withdrawal from gabapentinoids? So, uh, just to, just to highlight the point, when you're 80, you have 50% renal function. And that's just due to aging, right? So aging knocks off renal failure, renal function, right? And there's nothing you can do about it. That's just life, right? Thankfully, we start out with roughly four times the renal function that we actually need. But aging reduces it by half at the age of 80. So that really highlights the, the, the vulnerability as we age to all hypnosedative drugs that are renally excreted, including the gabapentinoids. Now, moving on to this concept of dependence, I mean, I think it's, I think it's, it's absolutely incontrovertible at the moment now that there is a dependence syndrome associated with pre, uh, the, with pregabalin and gabapentin. You can get physiologically dependent on these and therefore you can develop a substance use disorder. So, I mean, I've seen, I've seen patients, um, I mean, the top dose of, of, uh, pregabalin is basically 600 milligrams a day. I've, I've had to treat someone on 3,600 milligrams. So that's six times, uh, the, the standard dose. And um, he was buying that illicitly off the streets. And, you know, the question is, why? So before we get into the actual withdrawal and on how we manage dependency in this situation, why is it that people misuse pregabalin thalipin? Ultimately, it, it falls into the, the same kind of bucket, I guess, of why anyone develops a substance use disorder. Ultimately, it becomes something along the lines of dependence, tolerance, um, and also what purpose the drug is serving uh, for the patient. Yeah. And a lot of the time, yeah. especially with the gabapentinoids, I've noticed a lot of people are looking for some of those euphoric sensations as well as the sedating yeah. effect, similar yeah. somewhat to some benzodiazepines. But we do yeah. know that people, especially because um, a lot of these medications, gabapentinoids, uh, sorry, gabapentin is usually a TDS dosing regimen and pregabalin is usually a BD regimen. We... I've, I've certainly seen that patients usually use the medications a lot more frequently to try and get that clinical response. And then usually I find they develop tolerance and dependence in, in quite short time period. Is it, has that been your experience as well? Yeah, yeah. And going back, reflecting on what you said about, um, you know, the sedation and the high euphoria. I mean, you know, in the UK, it is licensed, I think, for uh, generalized anxiety disorder. So it does have an anxiolytic effect. So if you're traumatized in life and you're you're looking for an escape from your psychological wounds rather than going to heroin rather than going to illicit benzodiazepines illicit uh, pregabalin is, is, is going to work you know for you as well but as you say it is a, a drug that you can get tolerant to very quickly and the key you know the, it's actually in my experience although although it's very i've i haven't i have rarely detoxed people off um gabapentin. The literature suggests that it's very difficult to come off illicit gabapentin, uh, pregabalin. It's very, it's a very addictive drug. It needs to be done very, very slowly. And there is a risk of seizures and there's a risk of withdrawal agitation. What's your experience of that? I haven't seen too many seizures of people coming off gabapentinoids per se, but I have seen a lot of agitation and I have seen patients really be quite resistant to to wean and come off gabapentin like you yeah. it, I, I do do a wean over a, sh a long time period particularly in the community yeah. i have seen more rapid 
um, I guess, withdrawals in, in residential inpatient settings. And they haven't, they have gone, uh, relatively unremarkably, I, uh, as in the autonomic effects were not as bad as I would have expected. But mm. with withdrawal management, you, the main thing is to make sure the patient is on board and that the rate of relapse is not high. And the dangers mm. with trying to do things too quickly is that we do, do things to the patient rather than with the patient. And then yeah. we may be putting the patient in, in, a, in an area of more harm. So practically like you, and there are different scales um, that different people use, but I usually come to an agreement with the patient about a fixed weaning regimen, as in, say, if someone's on 300 BD of pregabalin, say we decide to wean by 25 or 50 milligrams per week or fortnight, something that the patient's happy with and that I can do, uh, that I can tolerate, then usually it'll be stage supply and regular monitoring to, to ensure that, that there are no real complications going that way. And usually yeah. those kind of weans are relatively uncomplicated. Has that been your experience? Yeah, I think it's, I think if you're dealing with high, th- non- high dose uh, pregabalin, but nonetheless within the therapeutic range, I think that's entirely reasonable. Uh, but I, I'm reflecting back on the couple of patients that I've seen so far that required inpatient detoxes for supra physiological doses, i.e., you know, the 3,600 milligrams. And we basically used, um, a lot of diazepam and, and took them, reduced them by half fairly quickly. Um, and that, that, you know, nothing, from memory, nothing happened to, to those patients. But I wouldn't do that in the community. You know, if right. I was in the community, again, it would be, da- you know, daily or weekly pickup with controlled amounts and a gradual steady wean. Here's a question for you. Would you use additional benzodiazepines in the community to facilitate a gabapentin wean? Would you, you know, what would you, or a pregabalin wean? What would you say to someone saying, oh, I have to have something for my nerves instead? Not in the community. Uh, in, in a monitored withdrawal unit, uh, that is essentially what we do. We usually, um, practically when someone's on those supra uh, therapeutic regimens that you mentioned, Fergal, what we do is we either halve the dose or, or cease the dose and use diazepam as a bridge and then wean the diazepam during their inpatient, um, yeah. during their inpatient stay and then they're discharged with, with nothing. In the community, um, I would not feel confident with having two GABAergic drugs working synergistically, especially when I'm not 100% sure what exactly the, the gabapentinoid dosage the patient is taking and where I might not have control over that. I think that's a recipe for disaster. And, and we, as we said earlier in this episode, uh, a lot of the mortality associated with gabapentinoids is usually in combination with other drugs. I think you're potentially setting yourself up for failure and complication. Uh, would you, would you yeah. agree with that? Uh, totally. It goes back to the, uh, the, the overdose data that basically it's, it's not necessarily one drug. It's polypharmacy. It's polypharmaceutical hypnosedative overdose with GABA pentanoids and um, benzodiazepines together that's that's where you start getting into tiger country and so no you know i would not personally use additional benzodiazepines to facilitate a gabapentinoid wean in the community i i mean and if someone's saying they can't cope with their anxiety well you know i'd I'd give them evidence-based anxiety treatment you know which is basically ssris and cbt but you know i certainly wouldn't give them more valium indeed so in the episode of Cracking Addiction today, we've talked in, in detail about gabapentinoids, in particular gabapentin and pregabalin. We've talked about some of the pharmacodynamics um, of these medications. And we've also talked about the escalating harms that we're seeing in, in society associated with gabapentinoids. 
And we've also talked a bit about withdrawal management strategies and how to wean people off gabapentin and pregabalin in the community. So thank you for your attention on this episode of Cracking Addiction and bye for now. Thank you.